Well, good morning and happy Lord's Day. It is good to be with all of you this morning. Uh, we'll be back in 1 Kings in chapter 17 once more today. And what we come to when we come to this chapter uh, is a little bit like a wrestling match. Uh, last year I told you that it was a, a royal rumbayall because I love puns, royal rumble. But I did watch wrestling as a kid, so that might have been before some of your time. You guys were used to like Hulk Hogan and uh, what Jake the Snake and those sorts. Uh, so if you can imagine, uh, Ahab is sort of in the role of a wrestling heel. You can put him in the center of the ring and he's just talking trash, basically. What he has done in Israel is ignore, defy, and disrespect Yahweh the God who is. And he has done more evil than Jeroboam, who erected the golden calves and made up his own religion. More evil than his father Omri, even. He thinks it's no big deal to sin against the Lord. And so he is seated on the throne, and he is announcing to Israel that he is functionally replacing Yahweh with the Canaanite god, Baal. And so if we're in our wrestling illustration, he's the heel in the ring. You know, during my day, it would have just been Vince McMahon. And you know what happens when you're watching wrestling when it's really dramatic and gets really good? You know, somebody's, you know, Vince McMahon's in the middle of his speech. Ahab is in the middle of telling everybody how great uh, Baal is, and the lights go out. And what happens, right? Uh, in my day, it would be like Stone Cold Steve Austin was coming out. And so his, his music started with uh, the shattering of glass. It'd go, dun-dun, dun-dun, dun-dun. You know, and the lights would slowly come back up. And the crowd would roar, ah, you know. And he'd come, come running out onto the scene to confront whoever the, the heel was. That's sort of what's happening here in 1 Kings 17. Ahab is talking about replacing Yahweh with Baal. He's married a Baal worshiper, Jezebel. And he himself has built Baal a temple. And now, finally, in the midst of this darkness, we find Elijah show up. His entrance music plays, if you will. And he comes and he says to Ahab, it is not going to rain except by my word. The God who is, is turning off the water. He's withholding the dew. Now you and I immediately would ask, why this particular judgment from God? Why a drought? And the answer is twofold. On the one hand, the drought demonstrates that God is in control of the whole natural order. And... It's a covenant curse. God told the people in Deuteronomy, if you turn your hearts after other gods, I am going to bring a drought on the land. Very cause and effect. They've turned their hearts after other gods, and so here comes the drought. It's a covenant curse. That's one reason. And then the second reason is that the Lord is declaring war against Baal. He's going to demonstrate by his control of the natural order, by his withholding rain and dew from the land, that he is God, not Baal. In fact, at the end of this chapter, he's going to raise a widow's son from the dead, proving that he is God, 
not the god Mot. You guys remember last week we talked about these two Canaanite gods. Uh, Baal is seen as the god of life since he is a storm god who brings rain and fertility both to the land and to the people. Whereas Mot is the god of death. It, it was thought that seasonally these two would wrestle one another and for a time, Baal, 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 I've heard it a million different ways. I'm just going to do the best I can here. Uh, uh, Baal submits himself to Mot until he rises once more and brings the rains. And so you have the Canaanite gods of life and of death. This declaration of war, this declaration of drought, is the beginning of God demonstrating that he is greater than Baal, that he is greater than Mot, that indeed he is the God of life and death. That takes us to our main idea once more this morning which is this, the whole world, when we look at this text, we recognize that Yahweh is God alone and that the whole world works according to the word of the Lord. Life and death are in his hands. We talked about this by breaking chapter 17 into three different stories. One, the first one we did last week, we saw God command the rains and the ravens. This week, we're going to feature his command of a widow. And then, Next week, we'll talk about his command of life and death. And so we're just dealing with that bolded section in your outline. With that in mind, let's, let's pray and begin working through the text together this morning. Father, we come before you with many needs. In our flesh, we are blind. We ask that you would be our light. So often we are ignorant, we ask that you would be our wisdom. We are prone to being self-willed and self-focused. Be thou our minds. Open our ears to grasp quickly the Spirit's voice and delightfully run after his beckoning hand. Melt our consciences so that no hardness remains Make us alive to evil's slightest touch. When Satan approaches, cause us to flee to the wounds of the Lord Jesus and there cease to tremble at all alarms. Jesus, be our good shepherd. Lead us into green pastures by thy word. Cause us to lie down beside the rivers of its comforts and feed us there. Feed us with yourself and sustain us, Lord Jesus. Spirit, we ask that you would help us to hear as we ought to hear, to change our hearts. God, we pray all of these things. Father, we pray all of these things in the name of Jesus, by your Holy Spirit. Amen. Look with me at verse 1 of chapter 17. Now Elijah the Tishbite of Tishbe in Gilead said to Ahab, As the Lord, the God of Israel, lives, before whom I stand, there shall be neither dew nor rain these years except by my word. And the word of the Lord came to him. Depart from here and turn eastward and hide yourself by the brook Cherith, which is east of the Jordan. You shall drink from the brook, and I have commanded the ravens to feed you there. 
So he went and did according to the word of the Lord. He went and lived by the brook Cherith, that is east of the Jordan. And the ravens brought him bread and meat in the morning, and bread and meat in the evening, and he drank from the brook. And after a while, the brook dried up, because there was no rain in the land. Elijah confronts Ahab's idolatry, proclaims God's judgment, and then goes into hiding. And in part, we said that the penultimate reason for his hiding was to preserve his life from the murderous Jezebel. Remember, she is a zealot for Baal, and so she is killing God's prophets. We'll see more of that in future chapters. And so part of the reason why God has Elijah hide is to preserve his life. The ultimate reason he has him hide, though, is more significant. It's to demonstrate that his judgment is twofold. There's not just a famine of drought in the land, not just a famine of food and of water, but there will be a famine of God's word. He will not speak to his people. When God goes silent, this is God's judgment. Elijah is God's prophet. He bears God's presence and God's word. And so when Elijah is hidden by the brook Cherith, it is as if, as if God himself is hidden from his people as they enter into suffering. Also noticed last week that while God's judgment came on all of his people for idolatry, Elijah was not immune to the suffering that came along with it. In fact, God led him to the brook Cherith, which was not an Airbnb getaway. He's not looking at an endless pool over a nice beach and then onto the ocean. He's not ordering steak dinners on DoorDash. He's having carrion and bread scraps brought to him by ravens, which the book of Leviticus tells us these are detestable and unclean birds. They're gross. You know, you read Leviticus and you're like, God hates ravens. Detestable. And then here God's going, I know, I'll send him ravens to provide for him. Yet, it is God who leads him into this difficulty into the famine. He's God's faithful prophet, and yet he still suffers. And God provides for him in the midst of his suffering. God sends ravens. How encouraging it was last week to think about how when we are dealing with suffering and loss, when we feel at the end of ourselves, we can recognize that Jesus Christ is our good shepherd. And he's our good shepherd not only when he leads us beside quiet waters and has us lay down in green pastures, he's our good shepherd when he leads us into the valley of the shadow of death. We pointed that out in Psalm 23. David says, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. And he talks about how God guides him in the good places and also takes him into the dark valley. And what makes the dark valley bearable is that the good shepherd is with him. I mean, how, how encouraging it is for us to know that Jesus is with us. 
And he's not with us because we really screwed up and put ourselves in a really hard place and he is sort of like, I guess I have to go into the valley with this stupid sheep. The dummy. No, when we come to suffering in life, when we come to darkness in life, it never happens by accident. The Lord is with us by our side, leading and guiding us through, providing for us amid the suffering. And he's provided for Elijah here amid the famine. And then the brook dries up. God moves Elijah again. Not only will he provide for Elijah at the brook, he's going to move him and provide for him in a land outside of Israel. He's going to prepare a table for Elijah in the presence of God's enemies. Look with me at verse 8. The word of the Lord came to him. Arise, go to Zarephath, which belongs to Sidon, and dwell there. Behold, I have commanded a widow there, to feed you. And so two questions we need to deal with right away before we get into all the fun stuff of this section is why Zarephath and why this widow? If you're like me, you don't really care for geography, even your own geography, and so that makes biblical geography even more challenging. But, but look with me back at chapter 16 when we're learning about Ahab. You can see there in verse 31, we read this. He's talking about Ahab. And as if it had been a light thing for him to walk in the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, he took for his wife Jezebel, the daughter of Ethbaal, king of the Sidonians. Now look, look back in verse 8. Where is he going? To Zarephath, which belongs to Sidon. So we can see why this is significant geographically. Yahweh the God who lives, Elijah's God, has declared war on Baal's king, Ahab, and Baal himself. Elijah is going behind enemy lines. And what God is going to demonstrate is that he is Lord, not only of the promised land, but of all lands. Not only in his land, but in the land of the false god, they all. God is proving himself supreme. He is getting glory for himself. Which brings us to the second question. Well, why this widow? Judgment and mercy. When I was in high school, middle school-ish, we used to have a way of talking about relationships. So that if Jane and Joe were into each other, and I looked across and saw that they were sort of flirting together, I would nudge my friend and say, hey, what's going on there? And say, oh, uh, Jane and Joe, well, they are talking, right? And that meant they were sort of in this early stage of a relationship that if things continued to go well, the communication lines stay open, they would become boyfriend and girlfriend, and it was a good thing to be talking to a girl when you were a young man at my age in high school. Now, the flip side of that was, if you didn't see Joe and 
and Jane together for a long time, you might nudge your buddy and say, hey, I have not seen Joe and Jane together for a while. What is happening there? And the reply would come, oh, they are not talking anymore. You know, the relationship was off. Now, if you were interested in Jane, that was a very good thing. All right, now is the time to strike. But if you were in Joe's shoes, it was a very bad thing. It is never good for a relationship when communication is cut off. But it can get worse. A relationship can get worse than not talking. You know how? Well, Joe and Jane stop talking. But then, what happens when Joe goes and starts talking to Jenny? Sorry, Jenny, just a J name. It jumped in my head. Joe gets very jealous. I'm on, I'm on an alliteration roll. I need to stop myself here. But, but Joe, his jealousy is aroused. Why? Uh, because no long, I'm sorry, Jane's jealousy is aroused because she's no longer talking to Joe and Joe is talking to Jenny. I sound like a high school girl. But you get the idea. The moment that she, I'm sorry, that he starts talking to someone else, she gets jealous. And you know what she wants? She wants to get Joe back. This is, this is exactly what's happening in 1 Kings. God has stopped talking to his people in judgment. He's hidden away himself, his presence. And not only that, not only is he not talking to Israel, he's talking to someone else. His word and his presence is going to a Gentile widow. This is his judgment on those who would refuse his word. And this is what he said he would do. Deuteronomy chapter 32 and verse 21 reads this way. They have made me jealous with what is no God. They have provoked me to anger with their idols. Therefore, I will make them jealous with those who are no people, Gentiles. I will provoke them to anger with a foolish nation. God goes to a people, not his people, makes them his people. He makes them those who believe his word. It reminds me of 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 9. Peter speaking to Jews and Gentiles together. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, so that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. God calls even on that side of the cross, even in the old covenant, he calls Gentiles out of darkness and into his marvelous light. It's like Paul says in Romans, not all Israel is Israel, but those who believe the word of God. God's grace has never been just limited to Israel. It's always extended 
to people from every tongue, tribe, and nation. And God has decided to set His love on the most unlikely of candidates. We think of the words in Deuteronomy 7 when he's speaking to Israel. It's not because you were great or many or glorious that I chose you. It's not because this widow has anything to offer that he chooses her. He sets his love on her. God saves who he wills. And it really is interesting that he has always had it in his mind as part of his plan to bring all peoples to himself in part through Israel's rebellion. They reject him, the nation does. He takes his word to the Gentiles. It's mercy. It's a judgment. It's meant to be a kindness. The curse is a kindness meant to lead the people to repentance. It's mercy to them and it's, it's mercy to this widow. How glorious it is. God will save this widow. And she will join the ranks of Melchizedek, the mixed multitude of Egypt, Jethro, Rahab, Ruth, Naaman, and many others who enjoyed God's grace long before Peter made his way to Cornelius' house in Acts chapter 10. Which brings us back to the question that I left you with last week, midway through the sermon. Why ravens? Why does God send Elijah ravens when he could have sent him, well, doves? It's a clean bird. Or even chickens. You know, Elijah could have just killed them, cooked them up. Why ravens in particular? And I think that we learn the answer in Acts 10. Remember, Peter is on a housetop, he's hungry, and he begins to have a vision of a, a sheet coming down from heaven. It's really like a picnic blanket if you think about it. And on this picnic blanket are all kinds of unclean animals. And God says to Peter, rise, kill, and eat. And Peter's like, no way. I've never eaten an unclean animal, and I'm not going to start now, God. You can't trick me into disobedience. And the Lord says to Peter, Do not call what God has made clean, common, or unclean. Then Peter comes out of this vision, and all of a sudden there are men from the Gentile Cornelius' house at Peter, where Peter is staying. And the Holy Spirit tells Peter, Go with these men, don't delay. So Peter grabs his go bag and goes to Cornelius' house. This is an awkward obedience for him. Probably seems weird, and yet he does it. And listen to how he introduces himself. Acts chapter 10 and verse 28. And Peter said to them, You yourselves know how unlawful it is for a Jew to associate with or to visit anyone from another nation. But God has shown me that I should not call any person common or unclean. See what Peter's saying? Is God has shown me that he can make you all clean by his word. 
And this is precisely what happens. Peter preaches Christ Jesus crucified for sins and raised for justification. The people in Cornelius' house are cut to the heart. They repent and believe. They're filled with the Holy Spirit. They are baptized. They are joined to the number of God's people. And when we learn that God can take his grace anywhere he wants. So, so why ravens? Here's, here's my suggestion. God uses the unclean raven to provide for Elijah to prepare him to go to the unclean widow who will also provide for him. And while he is staying with that unclean widow, he will provide cleansing for her. He is going to take to her God's word and God's promise. God's very love. God is going to speak to her and she is going to listen. Friends, God can save any person, anytime, anywhere. He is mighty to save, and his arm is long enough to rescue those who are furthest from him. His heart is large enough to include the smallest of the small and the greatest of the great. His word still works. And so keep telling your friends and your family and your community about Jesus. Keep calling them to repentance. Keep, if we can pick up one of Jesus' metaphors, keep sowing seeds in the desert. God rules over life and death. The world works according to his word. He can make the gospel grow in places where it seems like it never would. Even in the heart of a Gentile widow, this Gentile, Gentile widow comes up not just here, but in the New Testament. Remember, we were talking about uh, the Lord using the Gentiles to make his people jealous as his people rejected his word. This is precisely how Jesus understands this passage. It almost gets him killed. Remember Luke chapter 4. There's a long section, so you're going to have to listen. Starting in verse 16. And Jesus came to Nazareth where he had been brought up. And as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day and he stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written. The spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and the recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. The eyes of all the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. And all spoke well of him and marveled at the gracious words that were coming from his mouth. And they said, 
is this not Joseph's son? And he said to them, Doubtless, you will quote to me the proverb, Physician, heal thyself. What we have heard you did at Capernaum, do here in your hometown as well. And Jesus said to them, Truly I say to you, no prophet is acceptable in his hometown. But in truth I tell you, there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah, when the heavens were shut up three years and six months, and a great famine came over all the land. And Elijah was sent to none of them, but only to Zarephath in the land of Sidon, to a woman who was a widow. And there were many lepers in Israel in the time of the prophet Elisha, and none of them was cleansed, but only Naaman the Syrian. When they heard these things, all in the synagogue were filled with wrath. And they rose up and drove him out of the town and brought him to the edge of the hill on which their town was built so that they could throw him down the cliff. I do love verse 30. But passing through their midst, he went away. Why do they want to kill Jesus? Because in bringing up this story, he is telling them, just like Ahab and wicked Israel rejected God's prophet and God's word by rejecting Elijah, so too you will reject me. You will reject me, God's messenger, God's son. And I will go to a people, not my people. I will take my message to a people who will believe it. Your rejection of my word will bring about my silence. It will bring judgment onto you. Friends, it is a dangerous thing to shut your ear to the word of God. We who are so privileged to have God's word in our hand, to hear it preached regularly, we must resolve to believe it, to submit to it, lest it be taken from us in judgment. If we refuse to listen to God, if we refuse to obey his word and chase after idols, he will give us over to those idols. He will go silent in judgment. You don't have to look far. There are plenty of churches across our nation and others that have this judgment on them right now. You can see pulpits adorned with rainbow flags and filled by drag queens. And you can very easily say, Ichabod, the glory of God has departed. It's clear that the word has gone silent in those places. Where Paul was once preached, we now find Demas in love with this world. But friends, let's make sure these places where God's judgment has fallen serve as a warning to us to not follow in their footsteps. 
but to obey the word. Let it be a warning to us to be careful who we listen to. Because most often, false teaching doesn't show up explicitly dressed in drag. Now, Satan much more prefers to play the part of an angel of light. False teaching is much more likely to come into a church like ours through men in nice suits who smile a lot. Let us be on guard. Let us never become bored with the word of God. Let us never become embarrassed by it such that we we try to, you know, sand off the sharp edges of God's word. We have to be very careful that in trying to lean over and reach the world, we don't fall into it. We shouldn't be embarrassed by God's word. We should be grateful for it. We should be boasting in it. Let the one who boasts, boasts in the Lord. Brothers and sisters, this word that is spoken to us is given to us by the king of the universe. And that king calls us his sons and daughters because of our faith in Christ. How silly is it to be embarrassed about the words of a king. Much better to be proud of them. My father is the king and he has spoken. Let us not be embarrassed by God's word. Let us not allow our ears to become dull. Let's commit to hearing and obeying the word to loving and cherishing it. God sends his word to this widow as an act of both judgment and mercy. And so we come to verse 10. Do you notice God's word propels this whole chapter along in the rest of Kings? God's word is the main character. You can see it, you can read it this afternoon and just underline or make note of how many times you see the word, word. Anyhow, we read in verse 10, So he arose and went to Zarephath. And when he came to the gate of the city, behold, a widow was there gathering sticks. And he called to her, Bring me a little water in a vessel that I may drink. And as she was going to bring it, he called to her and said, Bring me a morsel of bread in your hand. And she said, As the Lord your God lives, I have nothing baked, only a handful of flour in a jar and a little oil in a jug. And even now I am gathering a couple of sticks that I may go in and prepare it for myself and my son so that we may eat it and die. Elijah comes and he finds this widow gathering sticks and he tells her, yo girl, get me some water. And she listens. She's like, all right, I'll get you some water. That's cool. 
And while she's going to get him some water, while there's a famine in the land, while it hasn't rained, while there's no dew on the ground, he, he goes a little bit further. Elijah has no shame. All right, widow, poorest of the poor, uh, while you're getting me that water, why don't you grab me a pizza? Why don't you feed me a little bit? And she very kindly turns to him and says, she swears on his God, not hers. Did you recognize that? Says, hey, as the Lord your God lives, I don't have anything. In fact, I'm getting ready to cook my last meal, share it with my son, and die. And you think that might slow Elijah down a little bit. But no, he's, he's audacious. Look at verse 13. And Elijah said to her, Do not fear. Go and do as you have said. But first, make me a little cake of it and bring it to me. And afterward, make something for yourself and your son. This is, this is audacious. He's like, bring me a pizza. She's like, I don't, I don't have any food. I have like one hot pocket in the fridge. I'm going to split it between my son and I, and then we're going to die, right? And Elijah's like, actually, take that and then give me, give me the portion first, and then y'all feed yourself. I mean, at this point, the widow has no reason to believe. We can almost hear her sort of laughing, like, okay, r- ridiculous. I'm not going to, not going to give you my last meal. But then Elijah gives her this promise. He says, do not fear, verse 14, for thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, the jar of flour shall not be spent and the jug of oil shall not be empty until the day that the Lord sends rain upon the earth. Now he's given her incentive. He's telling her, there's a promise from my God to sustain you and to feed you through this famine if you will believe it. So she's at a decision point. Will she walk to her own death after one more meal or will she risk her last meal on food that won't run out? Now we we know there's not a chance in the world that she doesn't feed Elijah. What do I mean? Well, you go back to verse 9, and we find that God has commanded her to feed him. She's going to feed him. She doesn't know that God has commanded her to feed him, but God has ordained that she will. really is amazing, isn't it? God has decreed it, and yet she still must decide God is in complete control of the situation. He's in control of all the atoms and molecules in the universe. He's in control of this widow that he's commanded. And yet, she must respond to the word. She must act. She has no idea that God's commanded her or ordained that she would feed Elijah. But she still must choose to. She still must choose to to believe the word that God has given to her really is a good picture to us of God's sovereignty and our responsibility. Is God in control of everything in the cosmos? Absolutely, praise God. We need not fear when famine comes. 
because we know that God has brought us to it. And at the same time, must we make decisions that are our own decisions? Yes. We must take full responsibility for all of our actions. Is God in control of everything? Yes. Are you responsible for everything you do? Yes. Church, do not ever use God's sovereignty as an excuse for inaction. Don't ever, I always love this phrase, lean on a shovel and pray for a hole. Yes, God is sovereign. And we must act. We must take him at his word. We must decide as must this widow. Will she listen to God's word? Will she believe God's prophet? Or will she eat her last meal and die? And we find at the beginning of verse 15, she chooses to go all in. She went and did as Elijah said. She says, I'm going to take all my chips and I'm pushing them in on the God square. This is what faith is. It is believing what God has said. One commentator said, It is as if God says, give me everything you have because I will give you everything you need. This is the Christian life. We give all that we have to the one who loved us and gave himself for us, believing his word, believing that all who trust in his death are forgiven of their sins, believing that all those who repent of their sins and trust in his resurrection life will be raised to life. We believe in Jesus and we trust that he will give to us beyond our wildest imaginations. We trust that not only will he provide us with our daily bread today and tomorrow and until we die, we trust that he will allow us to eat from the tree of life in the new heavens and the new earth. This is Christianity. We take God at his word. We trust what God has said. Like Elijah, Jesus Christ calls all who will hear to make a decision. Will we believe his word or not? Will we submit to him as king or not? Will we believe him? Jesus, like Elijah, pushes all of us to a decision. Interestingly, though, unlike Elijah, Jesus doesn't ask us we demonstrate our faith by feeding him. Instead, he asks that we demonstrate our faith by feeding on him. I love this in John chapter 6, verse 53. Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him. This is what we do week after week when we come together around the Lord's table to eat of Christ's body broken for us and to drink of his blood shed for us. We are announcing again for the umpteenth time 
that we live on Christ alone. It is Christ who sustains our life. It is Christ who rules our lives. It is Christ who binds us together as one. And so when we come together as his people and share the cup and share the bread, we are sharing a meal with the Lord Jesus. We are eating together with him in celebration of his substitutionary death and of his victorious life. We are saying we are all in Jesus and we are still all in You have what we need. We will live on your word. You sustain us. Ask yourself this question and be honest. And maybe it's one you need to ask, not just now, but throughout the rest of the day. Is that true of me? Am I living on Jesus? Am I feeding on Christ to sustain my life? Or am I eating the trash the world has to offer me? What sustains me? widow goes all in and God delivers on his word. He always keeps his word. Verse 15, she went and did as Elijah said and she and he and her household ate for many days. The jar of flour was not spent, neither did the jug of oil become empty according to the word of the Lord that he spoke by Elijah. See the main message. Yahweh is greater than Baal. In Baal's land, in the house of an insignificant widow, God proves himself God over and over and over again. Day after day after day in a miracle that seems mundane. The jar isn't spent. The jug isn't dry. Day after day, God declares his glory. Day after day, the routine of an unnamed widow proves that God is glorious. Day after day, in the secret making of bread, God does a miracle. Friends, do not make the mistake of thinking that God is not at work in your life because nothing spectacular seems to be happening. He's always at work. He's always up to something. He's always giving you, at minimum, your daily bread. He's providing what you need. can remind ourselves that we shouldn't get bored with that. We should be like this widow who I imagine never got bored. You can see her in her kitchen going to the jug 
in the jar. There's still oil. There's, there's still flour. This is amazing. God is amazing. You know, kneading it. She's getting baking up that bread, and we can perhaps hear her singing. Praise to the Lord, who over all things so wonderfully reigneth, shelters me under his wings, yes, he so gently sustaineth. Hast thou not seen how thy, how thy desires all have been granted in what he ordaineth? We can hear her singing, Great is thy faithfulness. All I have needed, thy hand has provided. Just joyful as she thanks God for the routine and the regular and the ordinary. Brothers and sisters, this should be our posture. To give God thanks in the ordinary. And in a famine and in the fires of trials. We should remember always that God shelters us under his wings, that he sustains us by his word. Friend, when you are by the brook, take heart. God will send ravens. When you are in the ordinary, Rejoice, give thanks, sing, daily bread will come. You will never find the jar spent. You will never find the jug empty. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ will not run out. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your kindness to us. We thank you for your word and for the examples you've given to us throughout Scripture that we might learn. We pray that, like Elijah, we might obey your word immediately and with courage and boldness. We might speak it faithfully. We pray that, like this unnamed widow of Zarephath, we might take you at your word, believe your word, and enjoy all the promises of your word. Lord, we thank you that you give to us our daily bread. And we acknowledge that we do not live on bread alone, but by every word that comes from your mouth. Thank you for giving us ears to hear. Thank you for speaking to us and making us your own. Thank you for bringing us out of darkness and into marvelous light. Thank you for making us your people, for giving us your mercy. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.